Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 114, Spirit of Locarno. So far on the circuit of major 1920s diplomatic initiatives that I've presented you with, the results can best be described as mixed. The Washington Naval Conference was initially perceived as a slam dunk for all involved, but the details it left out constantly nagged at its participants, and it later had to be adjusted as circumstances and interests changed. The Genoa Conference was an unmitigated disaster, a circus of nations that fell apart under its own weight. But it was actually from the consequences of Genoa's failure that this week's topic will materialize, the Locarno Treaties. Less an all-encompassing conference and more an ongoing diplomatic arrangement between the UK, France, and Germany, the diplomatic dealings that led up to and follow Locarno are far more important than the conference itself. So this is going to be a longer-spanning story really one that covers diplomacy between the three nations through the back half of the 1920s. Instead of a pan-European conference where everybody was invited, the negotiations over the Locarno treaties would primarily be the concern of just the three northwestern European great powers, with Belgium ultimately also being included in the scheme, although they were mostly along for the ride. Keeping the parties involved to three major governments' tops was already a vast improvement over Genoa. And the agenda, too, was kept to what was manageable. On the docket was establishing an agreeable security arrangement for France and Belgium's eastern frontiers. Very straightforward, and although there were complicating factors like the Rhineland occupation and the status of Germany's disarmament, it was manageable compared to Genoa's attempt at a second Versailles. And finally, the Locarno Treaties were virtually agreed upon by the time the conference was actually held in October 1925. Since the start of that year, negotiations between the major governments had been taking place, meaning there weren't any surprises that would throw a wrench into things. The Locarno Treaties got their start from the disasters of 1923. The failure of Genoa in the first half of 1922 was not rectified, and the issue of reparations from Germany to France and Belgium dragged on endlessly. Finally, by the end of the year, Germany threw up its hands and defaulted, and in January 1923, the French moved into the Ruhr, setting off the collapse of the German economy that resulted in that country's infamous bout of hyperinflation. By the end of 1923, the nation of Germany had descended into a pile of dystopian clichés as it fell to pieces. But the occupation also isolated France politically, and didn't manage to bring the Germans to the table making the economic conditions in France dire as well. As the entire point of the enterprise was to force the Germans to comply with reparations payments that would in turn fuel the French economy, well, that was a problem. But with fresh internationalist-leaning governments coming into power in both France and the UK, the Entente were receptive to hash out a long-term arrangement with the German foreign minister, Gustav Stressmann. Stressman, as I described in the Germany episodes from almost two years ago, was a nationalist, but also a realist. And whereas before, many other German politicians had refused to give an inch to the Entente out of fear of a public backlash towards being seen as weak, the hyperinflation had been so devastating that the public was ready for its leaders to negotiate. For years, Germans had been under the delusion that they had not really lost World War I, at least not decisively, now that illusion was dispelled forever. The economic rescue package, the Dawes plan that I covered back in episode 29, not only provided American investment to restart the German economy, but also money to pay obligations to France and help that nation recover as well. 
but economic stabilization was only the first step. There had to be a diplomatic understanding that would prevent future conflicts like the one everybody had just gone through. The French always wanted their money and guarantees of security, the Germans wanted a payment plan that wouldn't ruin them, and the Entente armies off their soil entirely. The issue of the Entente leaving Germany proved to be an exasperating one for Stressman, though. There had been a plan in place to draw down the foreign presence in the Rhineland in stages, with the city of Cologne being evacuated first. But such departures depended on the results of an Entente investigation to see if Germany was meeting its treaty obligations towards staying disarmed. In late 1924, the investigations concluded that, no, the Germans were not following their treaty obligations to the letter, and there was evidence of disallowed weaponry being produced. Even Edouard Herriot, the center-left leader of France at that moment, had to conclude that evacuations would be delayed as a result. Stressman was caught at a loss. He fully understood that the sticking point to normalized relations with the Entente was French paranoia, but he simply didn't know how Germany could pose less of a threat without disbanding its army altogether. There might have been some munitions here and there that were disallowed, but they couldn't be expected to decide the course of any military encounter between their nations. Germany had an army of 100,000 men. It didn't pose a threat to France and couldn't pose a threat without years of obvious buildup. A handful of, strictly speaking, prohibited weapons shouldn't have been grounds to call off a potential detente in his eyes. The French, though, feared the small army all the same, with some pundits in the West arguing the tiny German force would be able to defeat the Entente through professionalism and the maneuverability a leaner force would have. Which was insane, but that kind of thing has never stopped a commentator from playing to a paranoid audience about a foreign threat. This kicked off a determined effort starting in January 1925 that would result in the primary treaty of Locarno, the Rhineland Pact. And by determined, I mean Stressman was feeling the pressure to get something done. The German electorate was growing restless again by then, and the conservatives in the UK had returned to power, putting Austin Chamberlain back in the role of foreign minister for the British. Chamberlain, half-brother of the more famous-slash-infamous Neville, was the champion of France in the UK. Whereas most British politicians favored a neutral stance towards the continent, Chamberlain was all in favor of a direct alliance with the French to form a bedrock of security in Western Europe. And that scared the hell out of Stressman, who assumed that Chamberlain was working to do exactly that. Chamberlain wasn't. He wanted to. But he wasn't, because the rest of the UK leadership wasn't in favor of it. But Stressman felt compelled to move fast regardless. On January 20th, 1925, he presented a plan for a mutual, non-aggression pact for all the major players in Western Europe, and a guarantee that the Rhineland would be demilitarized. What went unspoken was that the plan would undermine the Entente presence in the Rhineland as guarantees of security among all parties and the promise that no troops would be sent to Germany's western frontier meant that the presence of foreign troops didn't serve further purpose. The initial response was negative. Chamberlain saw it as a backdoor to ending the Rhineland occupation and even as a means to divide Britain and France from each other. Herriot, seeking a way out of the constant cycle of diplomatic crises and a way to avoid future military adventures, was at least receptive to the idea. Provided the British would be there to make separate assurances on France's security, of course. But the only guy in the UK leadership to show support for the idea was Winston Churchill, then Chancellor of the Exchequer. 
He opposed an alliance with France, whom he feared would use an alliance to start a war. His position was to delay the whole idea and give Germany time to recover. Once the Germans were closer to being back on their feet, then the UK could play them and the French off against each other. His point of view was taken up by other anti-French members of the British cabinet. This alarmed Chamberlain, who figured that some negotiation would have to take place, lest his beloved France would find itself in a weaker position down the line. He wrangled with his opponents in the cabinet for months, and the indecisive nature of the British Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin did not help in the slightest at ending the debate. Finally, in late March, Chamberlain threatened to resign if he couldn't start negotiations on the Rhineland Pact immediately. This sudden stand convinced Baldwin to back Chamberlain, and the foreign minister even got permission to give France their desired assurances on mutual security, in addition to negotiating a multilateral, non-aggression pact. Chamberlain had wanted a full alliance with the French, but due to challenges in the cabinet, settled for the more modest gestures of friendship. At least with this way, the French would be negotiating from a position of strength. The Rhineland Pact, as it came together, suited Western interests nicely. The pact, first and foremost, guaranteed the borders of Western Europe as they were. No more Alsace-Lorraine switcheroos. And to back that guarantee up, if any power on the frontier attacked another, then the guarantors of the treaty off to the sides would jump in. This would be the UK and also Italy. Mussolini didn't have a lot to do with negotiating the pact, but he also didn't want to be left out, so when everything was coming together, he lent Italy's weight to protect the peace and also make sure he made an appearance in the proceedings. The wording of the pact was not specific to an attacking nation. Theoretically, if France wanted to invade Germany, then the UK would be bound to deploy troops in defense of the Reich. This wasn't going to happen, but it was good they didn't single out any specific bad guys. This satisfied Chamberlain, as while he didn't get the full alliance, in the event of a German attack, the UK was obligated to ally with France. In the meantime, there wouldn't be an official armed camp in Europe dead set against Germany, which would have forced that nation to actively cast about for allies. For Herriot and France in general, it was a necessary compromise. They would climb down from their perch as the erstwhile hegemond of Western Europe, but would not have to rely on military displays for security. Plus, with the failures of the Geneva Protocol and the attempt at securing a formal alliance with the UK, this was the only viable diplomatic pathway forward. To handle the French side of the diplomacy starting in April 1925, Herriot sent in his own foreign minister, Aristide Briand. In securing Western Europe, Briand wound up making a painful sacrifice. While the borders in the West were guaranteed with the weight of military force, there were no such arrangements made for Germany's eastern frontiers. This was very deliberate on Stressman's part, as he fully intended that the borders with Poland and Czechoslovakia would be revised down the road. Even at this early stage, the Germans living in the Sudetenland and the Polish Corridor were a topic of controversy. Stressman offered up arbitration treaties with his eastern neighbors and agreements with France that when his nation's eastern borders were definitively hashed out, that it would be done through the League of Nations. A little problem with that was the UK adamantly refused to guarantee those agreements, meaning that if Germany resorted to means other than going through the League, the UK was not bound to interfere. The flimsiness of the arbitration agreements was highlighted when Chamberlain assured his parliament that Germany would not resort to force to resolve its disputed borders. Stressman immediately reached out to the UK 
and advised that force was very much on the table in the East. Brion tried to make up for the weakness by reaffirming the existing French guarantees on Poland and Czechoslovakia. The two nations were understandably unimpressed. The failure to conclude a guaranteed long-term agreement in the East was not seen by Britain and Germany as a huge problem. After all, the focus from the start was in the West. For France, though, it lent a new urgency to continue the Rhineland occupation, as well as what could be expected of Britain if and when it had to come to France's defense. For France, the security of its eastern partners hinged on French troops present in the Rhineland, with pre-established bridgeheads across the river itself. If Germany attacked in the east, then France would be in a position to immediately bring them to their knees. If the Rhineland were evacuated, then the Germans could hide behind a much shorter and defensible frontier, giving them time to deal with the east before France could break through to their allies' aid. Stressman confirmed this to his fellows, explaining that recovering the Rhineland was critical before turning eastward and also south towards Austria. Brion and Chamberlain, though, reached a mutual understanding in mid-August 1925, defining how Britain would intervene in a crisis. Chamberlain agreed that if the Germans entered the zone of occupation, that would count as violating the Rhineland Pact and tr would trigger a British response, despite the scenario technically happening on Germany's own soil. The Rhineland occupation was also important for the French because it would allow Britain to get an expeditionary force together. While the pact called for Britain to intervene in the event of a war, they would likely only start mobilizing once the battle actually got underway, meaning having a buffer of German territory was still important to France. Stressmen, on the other hand, pressed to include an Entente withdrawal as a component of the pact through the summer of 1925, even reporting to the German cabinet as late as September 24th that an evacuation was being considered. More so than a multilateral neutrality agreement or a guarantee of frontiers, this was going to be the issue dominating the discussions of the Locarno parties once the conference itself wrapped up. His idea was that the other major powers needed Germany in the League of Nations in order to lend that group additional legitimacy, and the price to be paid was a withdrawal. Yes, he considered Germany joining the club as such a boon to everybody else that they'd act against their interests. But Stressman was dispelled of those delusions because neither Chamberlain or Briand was were considering it, both opting to keep that part of the Versailles Treaty intact. Indeed, the longer the negotiations dragged on before the Locarno get-together proper, the closer the French and British thinking got. Which, you know, better late than never. The issue over the occupation was going to cause tension long after Locarno concluded, though, as while Stressman was forced to accept that the treaties didn't create a roadmap to end the Entente occupation, he still saw Locarno as the starting point to that end. The actual Locarno conference, held over 11 days from October 5th to the 16th, was a mostly humdrum affair. Most everything had been decided beforehand, and the main sticking point was when Stressman played hardball over a demand for the Entente evacuation of Cologne. It was a single city in the Rhineland, and while Stressman knew the Entente wasn't leaving entirely, he desperately needed some scrap of a withdrawal that he could take back to the German people as a sign that the Entente were acting in good faith. This was accepted as a compromise. The sliver of success encouraged Stressman to approach the Entente a month later and ask for more cities on the Rhine to be evacuated, saying that it'd make ratification of the treaties all the easier. They shot him down, and he had to scamper back to the Reichstag with only Cologne on the table. 
the nationalists, removed from the hyperinflation crisis, were not happy with the Locarno treaties and made noises to resist, although the majority of the Reichstag was in favor. Dangerously, Stressman's maneuverings for additional evacuations raised public expectations that the Entente would be drawn down in the not-too-distant future, which was entirely untrue. But regardless of future disillusionment, the Locarno treaties were a smash hit with the public. The gridlock that had ruined negotiations since 1919 had been broken, and the big three powers of Europe were working together. And that wasn't a misperception either. There was said to be a spirit of Locarno now guiding diplomacy, an optimistic but also practical mentality to achieve tangible results. Going into 1926, diplomacy in Europe would be dominated by the working relationship of Chamberlain, Briand, and Stressman. All three would be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their efforts at Locarno, and their work together would continue. Most of 1926 treaded over similar ground to what the three had debated over in 1925, namely the Rhineland occupation. Stressman added a little bit of variety to the debates by also arguing over how big the Entente garrison should be, with the Germans naturally favoring a smaller force and the French the biggest one possible. The idea being that if the Entente weren't going away, they could at least minimize their visibility. Relations were not helped by continued German propaganda campaigns encouraging civilians to not cooperate with the occupying authorities in the West. The constant pressure from Stressmen and the public displays of hostility from the German government wore on Chamberlain and Briand, with the former remarking that the only relationship that the Germans understood was that of master and servant, with no room for genuine friendship. Which, yeah, he's got a point. In April 1926, Stressman went back to the old well of approaching the Russians and concluded a neutrality agreement with the Soviet Union. Once again, Germany tried to show that it had options, and once again, the British and French threw up their hands in aggravation. All they wanted was for the Germans to meet their treaty obligations from Versailles, as modified by Locarno and also the Dawes Plan. The Germans, on the other hand, probed for any opening to get concessions, and it wore on everybody else's nerves. Nine months of back and forth led Briand and Stressman to having a little sit-down in the small town of Thoiry outside of Geneva on September 17, 1926. The pair worked out a scheme that would see an accelerated reparations payment made to France, a boon to the still shaky economy, and in exchange, the Entente would leave the Rhineland in a year. It was a striking idea, but blew up two months later when it turned out the Germans couldn't come up with the money. Their plan was to sell off railway bonds to foreign buyers to secure currency other than the still-weak mark. That meant enticing the Americans and British, neither of which had an interest in buying. With no money being raised, Briand called the idea off. The troops would have to stay. But Stressman's steady pressure was producing results, and Briand recognized that the occupiers had to leave sometime. During the end of 1926, Briand and Chamberlain floated the idea of ending the occupation, with the caveat that a civilian commission be established to monitor the Rhineland for signs of remilitarization. Basically, it'd be a watchdog group making sure that no fortifications or military facilities were built, and that German soldiers were kept out. The Germans did not take the proposals well. Once again, they complained of being treated as an inferior partner. The valid point was made that if the German army passed through the Rhineland, then observers wouldn't be required to notice. Many in France were put off by Briand's proposals as well. The worries about France's security and the idea of using the Rhineland as a buffer had not gone away at all. Briand was playing a dangerous game, 
trying to keep the Germans on board while keeping his domestic audience happy. And as 1927 began, a backlash started in Paris. Stressman had used the discussions about an early withdrawal as a means to legitimize the idea in general, and promised he'd demand a complete withdrawal during his appearance before the League of Nations in March. The rest of the French government had had enough, though, and Briand was reprimanded. Realizing his job was on the line, he publicly disavowed the evacuation ideas in January 1927. This made Stressman mad, and the two appeared deadlocked after a year of at least bouncing around ideas off each other. The French government, at the very least, wanted to buy time to construct the new Maginot Line defenses, approved only in February 1927, before leaving the Rhineland. The Maginot Line was a powerful system of concrete fortresses and weapons emplacements designed to fend off the German army long enough to let the French and British assemble their own armies in good order. The French could entertain letting the Rhineland go, but only after their new defense line was finished, and it was going to take years to build. This argument was pushed publicly by Marshals Foch, Joffrey, and Pétain in the press, a striking example of military men working to influence public policy. Briand, cornered by his government, military, and public, turned cold towards the Germans. In his personal discussions with them, he flatly rejected any early evacuation proposals, signaling that the possibilities raised in the past year were dead. This, in turn, put Stressman in a bind, as by now Locarno was over a year removed and once again needed something to show the German public that diplomatic engagement with the Entente was the way to go. There was also a fear among the Germans that the whole no-formal-alliances-in-Western-Europe idea might be abandoned by May 1927. This was the time when the UK and the Soviet Union had entered into a standoff against each other, and while the possibility of war was remote, Chamberlain wanted France firmly in the UK's corner. The idea of the Entente was revitalized, and Stressman fretted that a closer partnership between the two against the USSR would actually directly affect Germany more, which was partially why the French were happy to back up the UK in isolating the Soviets. With the UK distracted abroad, as early 1927 was also the period when their interests in China were under assault after the KMT opened the floodgates of nationalism, affairs in Western Europe were left to the French. The disputes between the UK and the USSR also left the Germans without a lot of options in terms of outside partners. Stressman didn't want to totally throw in with the West and shut the door on the Soviets being a partner in the future, but he also was too afraid of British retaliation if he courted the Russians at such a tense hour. Germany, for a time, became an afterthought in world diplomacy, and the Locarno power spent the middle of the year pecking at each other over an agreement pertaining to fortifications in the East Prussian city of Konigsberg, the demolition of which would see the Entente troop presence in Germany reduced from 70,000 to 60,000. If that doesn't sound like huge progress towards anything, it wasn't, and Stressman told Briand as much. The Germans, though, weren't ready to try anything bigger, and the rest of 1927 passed by, the great powers still at odds, and nothing new having been resolved as bigger affairs took center stage. This ended on February 1st, 1928, when Stressman made a public demand for a complete evacuation and a revised plan for reparations payments. Only after both were totally dealt with could Germany consider itself a committed partner to the Western European arrangement. Brion was irritated to no end at the public call-out, but kept to a middle course in his public response made as part of an address to the French government days later where he denied that a withdrawal from the Rhineland was an agreeable precondition to maintaining the Locarno agreements. 
The occupation was legal under the Versailles Treaty, it had a set timeline, and Locarno had not changed it. He did offer one critical allowance, and that was advance payments on reparations might speed the process, but he didn't offer a timeline or clear proposals to that regard. This was basically what he had discussed with Stressman in the year previous, but that hadn't gone anywhere at the time. The situation by early 1928, though, had changed slightly, as a French loan payment to the U.S. was coming due in 1929, and Briand's boss, the Prime Minister Poincaré, was newly open to accepting a payoff from the Germans in order to meet his own obligations to the Americans. Stressman, though, was increasingly caught in the tangle of German internal politics by the middle of 1928. The Germans would have loved to see the Entente off early, but there was the nagging issue of, you know, the money. The Dawes plan had created a schedule of payments with a five-year grace period before they started, but with the time now approaching to actually start paying out, the Germans all of a sudden wanted to renegotiate. The new priority in Berlin was in revising the Dawes plan of payments and securing a lower amount due. The fear was that if they cut a deal of advance payments using the Dawes plan, then they'd admit that plan's legitimacy, and it would be more than something they agreed to under duress years earlier. Which is exasperating, as the plan came together to try and show the Germans a little mercy and not just loot their country. But the second they got a little breathing room, they went right back to trying to secure more favorable terms. Stressman wasn't thrilled with this thinking, but he was only the foreign minister. This fatally delayed a potential new agreement, and by mid-1928, when a new coalition in Germany led by the SPD was in power and providing fresh backing for Stressman's policies, the French had moved on from the idea. Which was just as well, even the members of the German leadership, friendly to the idea of a compromise on the evacuation issue, agreed that they couldn't pay out anything close to the amount France would likely demand. The Germans fell back again on their tired position of unilateral evacuation. After all, they had demilitarized, accepted their western borders, and entered into pledges of mutual security. What more could be asked for? Besides the money, of course. This astonishingly frustrating dance between the two powers goes to show how even at the best of times during the 20s, a final settlement on issues originating at Versailles was still well out of reach. A grave problem, too, was brewing domestically in Germany. Despite the SPD-led government being open to some kind of compromise, the German press, which was either friendly to the German nationalists or, in the case of the papers owned by Alfred Hugenberg, were outright controlled by them, was pushing the idea that the Locarno system had failed Germany. The German people were fed a steady stream of talking points that their country was being treated like a subjugated power and not a partner at all. They were the ones with foreign troops on their soil and expected to pay huge sums of money for the privilege. That they were a defeated power with public demands on their eastern neighbors was ignored. German public opinion became increasingly impatient with Stressman's long-term approach of chipping away via minor concessions piece by piece. This sentiment was not helped by the UK finding the time to take a renewed interest in the matter, and they quickly began siding with the French once again. The UK's diplomats commented that the Germans were impossible to work with and were interested only in securing maximum concessions before retreating into a stance of non-cooperation when they got as much as they could. Starting in September 1928, the Germans attempted to press for a reparations plan adjustment, the result of which they superswore they would abide by. In exchange, the Entente had to leave German soil. This was clearly unacceptable and 
basically resulted German nationalism putting its own diplomacy in a straitjacket. Chamberlain and Briand rebuffed this just like they had in the past, but agreed to a renegotiation of the reparations terms in December 1928. This would develop into the Young Plan, that sequel to the Dawes Plan that reduced German commitments, but still represented a burden that nationalists in Germany firmly rejected. It was wrangled over from the start of 1929 via an international committee headed by an American businessman, Owen Young, who had also been the number two guy in the Dawes Plan. Stressman, though, was really starting to feel the heat back at home through the start of 1929. The sitting chancellor was Hermann Mueller of the SPD, but he presided over a coalition government composed of partners who really preferred not to work too closely with the socialists, even moderate ones. As a result, the cabinet seats that headed the country's ministries were divvied up between all those groups, and in January 1929, those ministers simply declined to work as a team. The members of the Reichstag basically did the same. Effectively, this meant that the German government would continue to ensure that budgets got put together and the work of negotiating the Young Plan was supported. Otherwise, it kind of just went inert, which is what happens when a government loses all legitimacy and demonstrated how easily German nationalism sunk any attempt to change things that didn't immediately leave Germany a stronger position than its neighbors. I kind of skimped over the Young Plan back in episode 30, and honestly, I'm going to do the same here, as that plan long-term didn't really mean a whole lot. But because it did affect the overall diplomatic picture, I will go into a few details. From April through June, representatives from the Entente wrangled with the president of the German Reichsbank, Hjalmar Schacht, over what Germany could or could not pay. Schacht, who you don't really have to remember now, but will be at the center of Nazis' economy in its peacetime years, proved as intractable as every other functionary from Germany. The plan appeared on the service to demand more of Germany up front. While the total amount owed dropped from 132 to 112 billion Reichsmarks over 59 years, for the first 37 yearly installments, the payments actually increased from 1.7 to 2.4 billion. The way these payments were broken down left a lot of wiggle room, though. Out of that 2.4 billion Reichsmarks payment, only 660 million of that was locked in. The rest either depended on economic conditions or could be deferred at the discretion of the German government. Also, oversight would be transferred from an Entente committee to an international group set up to dole out the payments. The schedule of the plan was made with the Entente's own payment plans to their loans to America in mind. Despite the favorable terms, getting the plan through the Reichstag was contentious. And as I mentioned back in episode 30, the public debate allowed Hitler to international politics as a legitimate player on the far right, but short term, it didn't matter, I guess. They got the legislation through in August, and the way was open to talk about that occupation once again. By that time, a lot had changed in the Locarno relationships. Labor was in power in the UK, and Chamberlain was out, along with his explicitly pro-French stance. Stressman's health was irreversibly in decline, and he was only a couple months from the strokes that would kill him. Briand was still kicking and was serving as a short-term prime minister for the 11th time after Poincaré had resigned due to health issues. With a new equilibrium, the three Locarno partners met in The Hague in the Netherlands in August 1929 for what was called the Conference for the Final Liquidation of the World War. Only took them a decade. The conference would be Briand and Stressman's last major encounter, and it was again contentious. 
the Germans secured an Entente withdrawal from the majority of the Rhineland, with the bulk of the occupation ending in June 1930. The sticking point was now the Saarland, a patch of coal-rich land on the French border. Per the Treaty of Versailles, special conditions governed that region, as it was set in 1935 to have a local vote on whether to rejoin Germany, as it was directly administered by France at that point, or it could remain under French governance. The strokes that Stressman later suffered might have been caused by his conniptions over the issue. The inhabitants of the Saar were going to vote to rejoin Germany, that much was a given. Why the French couldn't just let the area go and withdraw fully from German soil was beyond him, and it threatened to incense German public opinion right when some legitimacy for internationalism could be had. For once, I am on his side. The French were well within their legalistic rights to stay, as it was a special carve-out, separate from the rest of the Rhineland, but the prudent thing to do would have been to just leave at that point. This was especially true because the new UK foreign minister, Arthur Henderson of the Labour Party, refused to coordinate with France as Chamberlain had, and indeed wanted to return British diplomacy to its play-no-special-favors mode. Indeed, the British signaled that they would evacuate the Rhineland early and without the French. This decision was made without consulting Briand. All this left the three Locarno players divided against each other and the Entente effectively defunct. And I'm not understating things. At one point, the British were threatening to not adopt the Young Plan themselves without massive revisions, sending more money their way, which prompted the French to threaten to take all the British pounds that their government held and convert them to gold and bring it back to France, crippling the British monetary supply. It was a bluff, but the mere fact that the threat was made signaled how far relations had fallen. And while all three powers left the Hague agreeing to the Young Plan and to withdrawing from the Rhineland, sans the Saar, the so-called spirit of Locarno was kind of in tatters. The British were out of the Rhineland in weeks, the French started leaving in November, and there was no plan as to what would happen afterwards. The Rhineland was still demilitarized for the Germans, but no observers would be present, and only the Locarno agreements kept the peace. Those agreements had been discredited in Germany, and no deeper understanding had been made between the three main players. If anything, with the exits of Chamberlain and Stressman, they just got a whole lot worse. Briand was left deliberating on his idea of a European Union to guarantee the continent's security by simply putting everybody under the same roof, but that idea never got past the conjecture stage. He certainly was casting about as to where the whole enterprise went wrong. The Locarno system had started promisingly enough. Guarantees were made to both borders and collective security, but there was never a true collective vision, just a group of powers trying to push their own interests and defense. If France had not suffered so much damage and taken on so many debts as to necessitate reparations, and if Germany wasn't so intent on its own hollow national standing, the detente system could have worked. But as it turned out, the ghosts of Versailles took too long to be overcome. While the questions of money in the Rhineland were ultimately solved, the process did not create a basis for a permanent peace. And by the time that those issues were wrapped, the great financial crisis was set to hit and wipe the Locarno system away entirely, leaving those self-centered powers scrambling all the more to look out for number one. But now with Locarno out of the way, the last big topic I have left for this international relations series will be covering the legalistic effort to outlaw war, which culminated in the Kellogg-Briand Pact that banned aggressive war, which obviously failed, but is worth knowing about because it did provide the legal basis to prosecute the Axis war criminals after World War II. 
which means it'll be something that pays off a lot later on down the road. So join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.